ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Awabakal, Darug and Eora people. It was October 1973 in London and an Egyptian man named Ashraf Marwan called a meeting. Marwan was well-connected. He was the son-in-law of the previous Egyptian president and now the top aide to the new president, a bit of a Nepo baby. But what his bosses in Egypt didn't know is that he was also a spy. Marwan's meeting was with the head of the Israeli spy agency Mossad. You see, Egypt was planning to attack Israel and Marwan was giving Israel a warning. They had 18 hours before Egypt and Syria would invade. But the Israelis were a little bit sick of Marwan. You see, he'd warned Mossad twice before that war was imminent. Both times, it had been a false alarm. Thousands of troops had been mobilised for nothing. It was a classic boy-who-cried-invasion scenario. And now Marwan was telling them the war was going to kick off again, this time on Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar, a massive national holiday in Israel. News of the invasion was slow to reach the top levels of the Israeli government. Time was wasted and Israel was not prepared. But Marwan was right. The war's outbreak took the world by surprise. Egypt and Syria launched a simultaneous surprise attack. Egyptian forces are at present engaged in military operations. It caught Israel off guard and led to thousands of casualties. It was seen as the biggest intelligence failure in Israeli history. That is, until exactly 50 years and one day later, when Hamas fighters burst through the fences and walls of the Gaza Strip just after dawn. went on a horrific rampage, killing more than 1,300 people and taking around 200 hostages. Today, in our second episode on the Israel-Gaza war, how can one of the most well-resourced intelligence communities in the world, specifically designed to prevent this exact thing from happening, fail to detect an operation that involved months of planning, meetings in multiple countries and thousands of militants? It's happened before. So how did it happen again? I'm Matt Bevan. I'm a little bit husky, and this is If You're Listening. Israel's main method of defending themselves from Hamas is to literally contain them in the Gaza Strip. No one goes in and no one goes out without the express permission of the Israeli government. To achieve that, they've built what they refer to as the obstacle. From a distance, it looks like a fence, but it's so much more than that. The fence is six metres high, and under it is... A deep uh, underground concrete wall, which will be very difficult to tunnel through. But that's not all. It's part of a cocktail. The main ingredients of the cocktail are a concrete wall and two fences. But it's the garnishes that are really interesting. Remote-controlled drones, remote-operated cameras, remote-operated gun turrets with AI-assisted targeting remote seismographs to detect any digging nearby. It's all wireless, with solar panels and battery backups to save it from power outages. It can be operated from a central location and doesn't need thousands of troops patrolling up and down the border. 
It's 65 kilometers long and gives Israel confidence that they can decide who comes to their country and the circumstances in which they come. On top of that, Israel's installed the high-tech Iron Dome missile defense system, which can automatically detect rockets and shoot them out of the sky. Israel is very proud of it. The military says hundreds of rockets have been intercepted so far. And in any case, the Israeli government was increasingly convinced that Hamas was less extreme now and weren't as much of a threat. Besides, they were trapped behind an impregnable, ultra-high-tech border fence. And so Hamas slipped down their priority list. A long way down. With their new sense of security, the Israeli government focused on a completely different project, in a completely different place, but one which everyone knew would irritate Hamas. The project was expanding and protecting Israeli settlements on the West Bank. The West Bank is the area where more than half of Palestinians live, on the other side of Israel. And to understand how Hamas was able to launch a surprise attack on October 7th, it's crucial to understand what an Israeli settlement is. If you look at the West Bank on a map, it looks like a kidney bean. But if you look at it properly, it's actually more like a piece of Swiss cheese. The Palestinians live in the holes. The cheese bits are controlled by Israel. On nearly every hilltop around here are Israeli settlements. Gated communities of Jewish residents in the middle of the land Palestinians want for their future state. So pockets of Palestinians surrounded by Israelis. This has not yet led to peace and harmony. And so the Israeli security services have been deployed to keep the peace. Israeli soldiers occupy more than 60% of the West Bank. According to international law, these Israeli settlements are illegal. I believe in the right of the Jews to re-establish our homes and our villages in areas which were for thousands of years a part of the Jewish history. One of the long-term residents of these settlements is Itamar Ben-Gavir, who first started making news decades ago and is now one of the most influential people in Israel. A member of the radical Jewish Kach movement, branded a terrorist organisation by the US government. He's an activist for Israeli settlers and he says he fights for every metre of Israeli land because he knows what happened to Jews who didn't have a home in Europe in the 1940s. Ben-Gavir is an ultra-nationalist and a violent activist. A convicted criminal with a rap sheet that includes inciting racism and supporting a terrorist organisation. His politics are so extreme that he was disqualified from compulsory military service. He's been arrested hundreds of times and spent more than nine months in jail. In court, he likes representing himself. He's done this so often that judges started suggesting that he probably should just go and study law to give himself a better chance. Once he became a lawyer, he specialised in defending Israeli Jews accused of hate crimes and terrorism. He was elected to the Israeli parliament in 2021. And that didn't stop him from getting out into the streets to defend the rights of Israeli settlers. In October last year, he was filmed at the site of a violent clash between settlers and Palestinians in East Jerusalem. As he's pulled away from the scene by police, he urges them to shoot Palestinians who throw stones. Then he reached under his suit jacket and pulled out an actual handgun and started waving it around. Yes, 
At the time, he was a minor party backbencher prone to trolling. And don't we all know and love those guys? But the following month, he got a massive promotion. Benjamin Netanyahu, desperate for coalition partners, signed a deal with Ben Gavir. In exchange for his party's support, Ben Gavir would become the Minister for National Security, in charge of keeping Israelis safe and protecting them from Hamas. But he had other things on his mind. Benjamin Netanyahu's sixth term as Israeli Prime Minister has been dominated by right-wing parties in his coalition that want to annex the entire West Bank. Just days into his tenure, Ben Gavir decided it would be a good idea to go and visit the Al-Aqsa Mosque at Jerusalem's Temple Mount. In Israeli politics, this is the equivalent of waving a gun around in the street. For extremely complicated reasons that go back literally thousands of years, Israeli leaders visiting the mosque tends to make many Muslims extremely angry and has on several occasions in the past led to violence. A surprising unity ticket formed with Hamas, the United Nations and the United States government asking Ben Gavir not to do it. Hamas called it provocative. The UN and the US said it risked inflaming tensions. The Israeli opposition said it risked the nation's security and the safety of its citizens. Keep in mind, Ben Gavir is the national security minister. Anyway, he went to the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is open for everybody, Muslims, Christians, and yes, also Jews. We make it clear to Hamas, we don't give in, we don't surrender, we don't blink. Sure, I mean, what are they going to do about it, right? The Israeli government, meanwhile, ramped up the establishment of settlements in the West Bank. Ben Gavir personally ordered several unauthorised Palestinian homes to be bulldozed to make room for more settlements. With that violence increased around the settlements as well. According to the United Nations, 2022 was the deadliest year for Palestinians in the West Bank since they began recording fatalities in 2005. 2022 was bad, but 2023 has been worse. Ben Gvir has expressed little interest in doing anything about this. What he's very interested in doing something about is attacks on settlers. Late last month, a Palestinian gunman shot dead seven people near a synagogue in a settlement in East Jerusalem. Except now he's not waving his gun around. He's encouraging Israelis to arm themselves. I want weapons on the street. I want Israeli citizens to be able to protect themselves. Ben Gavir made law and order in the West Bank his top priority deploying more troops and police to defend settlers and raid the homes of suspected terrorists. With the high-tech but lightly manned Gaza border fence, Israel's strategy was based on the idea that they would deploy troops there if they were alerted that something was coming. Picking up warnings was vital. So, were there any warnings? Twenty-five days before the attack, Hamas released a video of their fighters training for a massive assault on the border fence and Israeli army camps. The video was high-quality propaganda of what looked like a very well-equipped operation, with drones flying around and large groups of well-armed men moving quickly through a training course. I've watched the video of this rehearsal and video of the actual attack, and they're difficult to tell apart aside from the blood in the real version. This is the kind of thing that should have triggered an alarm in Israel. 
I mean, Israel has spy agencies. Surely they would hear or see something concerning and then send troops and guards to the fence to deal with it. And yet it seems that the system didn't really work. The thought of 2,000 Hamas terrorists overcoming a multi-billion dollar security system, I don't think was on anybody's radar screen in terms of possibilities. So the propaganda video from Hamas was warning number one. Ten days before the attack came warning number two. The Egyptian intelligence agency, which is now a friend of Israel, called Benjamin Netanyahu's office to tell the Prime Minister that Hamas was planning something unusual, a terrible operation. And yet it seems this was ignored too. Six days before the attack, the Israeli national security advisor Zaki Hanajbi was confidently telling the Israeli Defence Force radio station that Hamas had pivoted to a position of unprecedented restraint. Three days before the attack, Egypt called to warn Netanyahu again. According to Egyptian officials, Netanyahu wasn't concerned and was more focused on the West Bank. Netanyahu denies that he ever got a call. Itamar Ben-Gavir began planning another visit to the Al-Aqsa Mosque. When Israeli officials went to bed on the 6th of October, exactly 50 years after the Yom Kippur War began, they slept soundly, with no clue of what was going to happen in the morning. It started at 6.30. Small drones packed with explosives flew out of Gaza. They flew directly to their targets, the mobile internet towers which enabled the entire Gaza border security system to operate, and the observation towers with AI-targeted machine guns. They dropped explosives on the towers, taking them out. They also dropped explosives on the tanks stationed along the border. The billion-dollar remote-controlled defences were offline. Paragliders took off, covered by rocket fire, and flew over the fence, attacking any troops nearby. Then Hamas fighters charged at the fence with bulldozers, explosives, motorbikes and trucks. They were able to drive right up to it and take it down. No matter how many sensors, at the end of the day, it's effectively a metal fence, right? The militants attacked the headquarters of the Israeli border security operation. They killed the soldiers inside, many of whom were still in bed. For the entire morning, they rampaged almost unchallenged across southern Israel before the Israeli Defence Force was able to arrive and fight back. 1,500 Hamas fighters were killed, which is an extraordinary number. And it's indicative of how big an operation this obviously was from Hamas's perspective. In the days after the attack, Hamas gloated about how successfully they'd fooled Israel. They've openly said they wanted to lull Israel into a false sense of security, something which appears to have worked perfectly. You got to call a spade and spade, and this was a massive, costly failure, and Israel knows that. It was a failure almost identical to the one 50 years beforehand. Hamas has specifically cited increased settler violence and Itamar Ben-Gavir's visits to the Al-Aqsa Mosque as their reasons for the attack, which they called Operation Al-Aqsa Flood. Ben-Gavir hasn't accepted any responsibility, 
despite the fact that the border police are his responsibility as the Minister for National Security. He says now's not the time for investigations. But it does seem that his role in this debacle has been noticed. He's been excluded from the war cabinet formed by Netanyahu and opposition parties to deal with the current emergency. It's worth noting that in 1973, Israel did eventually win the Yom Kippur War. We'll see if the parallels continue. listening is written by me, Matt Bennett. Series producer is Yasmin Parry. This is part two of our series on the Israel-Gaza conflict. If you want more, you can check out last week's episode on the history of Hamas. It's here on the podcast or it's already up on YouTube. Next week, the wild card, Hezbollah. It's an Iranian-backed militant and political group like Hamas, but far bigger and more powerful. They're based in Lebanon, and they're threatening to get involved in this war on Hamas's side. Who are they, and what would it mean if they jump into the fray? That's next on If You're Listening. Oh, and before I go, if you're interested in how Israel used AI to patrol the Gaza border fence, which I talked about at the start of this episode, it just so happens that ABC Science has just released a new series all about artificial intelligence, including generative AI and driverless cars. It's in the feed of the Science Friction podcast. You can find it on the ABC Listen app now. But before you do, here's a little taste of what you can expect. Oh, the car just arrived. When San Francisco got driverless taxis, I knew that my older brother, who taught me to drive while wearing a stack hat bike helmet, would be swanning about San Fran in one. Do people judge you for getting a driverless taxi? I don't think so. I didn't think so. Suddenly, artificial intelligence is everywhere. Attention, human. The future has arrived. Welcome. Do you know how this uh, this taxi actually works? No, no idea. Completely putting my faith in the technology. You're here. Please make sure it's clear before exiting. This is Hello AI Overlords, a new series from Science Friction. I'm James Pertil. I'm a tech reporter at ABC Science. And over the last decade, I've watched artificial intelligence go from the fringes of science to driving my brother around the tech capital of the world. What would happen if you jumped in the front seat and grabbed the steering wheel? Um, Last time I rode it, it told me not to do that. ChatGPT is now happily doing homework. It wasn't uh, an amazing mark. One thing with AI that I've noticed is it won't ever get you to the top, top mark. Just to be clear, did that count as cheating? That would count as cheating. Facial recognition is scanning us in shops. So at every red light, there's a camera. I don't want to be surveilled. And actors and writers are already fighting for their future. You know, I hope the strike is going to be effective because we're standing in the front lines of this war. So what the hell happened? Over this series, I'll tell you the amazing human stories of how he got here. I don't think that in his wildest dreams he thought that this computer had a chance. It's a story of inventors chasing a dream of intelligent machines and succeeding. But the future they created is not the utopia they wanted. He's like, so the computer got it wrong. And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, the computer got it wrong. It's a story about not just technology, but money and power. To understand where AI is heading, 
we need to know how it was created and why. Shoddy technology leads to shoddy investigations. The bot ended up spewing out, you know, lots of racist, nationalist content. Because the real risk of AI is not the AI, but the humans who control it. I think that this was just a series of very, very horrible things that happened and very, very greedy people behind it. Find the series on the ABC Listen app. Search for Science Friction. Don't forget to subscribe or follow so you don't miss an episode. If you like the sound of it, tell a friend or your friendly neighbourhood chatbot. Thank you. See you soon.